Can we change the way we produce food to both meet the needs of humans whilst regenerating our soils and ecosystems? And can we do so in a way that improves the financial viability of farms? These questions are becoming increasingly urgent to answer, and we're here to investigate a promising technique called agroforestry in order to find out how it can help us with these challenges. We'll be interviewing farmers, scientists, and other experts to share with you their experiences, practical advice, and scientific research. Today, I'm interviewing Ben Raskin, who's leading the implementation of various agroforestry systems on Eastbrook Farm in the UK. You'll get a really clear understanding of why and how were trees planted on Eastbrook Farm. I really enjoyed Ben's passion for wood chips, and we got into the details of how much to apply, the results they have achieved with them, and how to supply them in the future. Ben is also able to give a detailed comparison of the different options for protecting trees, which is such a crucial component of establishing silver pastoral systems. I really hope you enjoy the episode. Hi, Ben. Welcome to the podcast. Hello there. Thanks for joining us today. And um, let's get started with an introduction um, on who you are and how you got interested into agroforestry. Yeah, so uh, I'm Ben Raskin. Uh, I, uh, my main role, job at the moment is working for the Soil Association. Um, I head up their horticultural and agroforestry work. Uh, my background is as a vegetable grower. So I was in mostly commercial vegetable production for around 12 years. Uh, and at the moment, I'm also managing uh, an agroforestry plantation in uh, Wiltshire in southwest England. And then I do other bits and pieces of uh, sort of advice and writing to keep me off the streets. And uh, when's the first time you heard about agroforestry or that you started experimenting with it? I'm not sure, if I'm honest. Um, I've been trying to think about this recently. And so around... Uh, when was it? Around 10 years ago, I planted up a very small agroforestry um, system, which I can tell you about in more detail. Um, it ended disastrously. but um, and, I, and I'd been interested for a couple of years before that. So sort of, a, I guess, sort of 12, 15 years. I, but I can't remember what it was that got me interested. There was no sort of there was no eureka moment where I suddenly thought, this is it. Uh, you know, I've, I've got to do this. I think it was a, a sort of a drip drip really about um, about the interactions between trees and, and initially vegetables anyway. Well, I, I can't help myself but be interested by disasters. So what, what happened in that <laughs> first uh, project? Well, it had so much potential. It was it was an old, a big old glass house and uh, polytunnel nursery that had gone bust. Uh, and there was a vision of creating an, an eco center, uh, you know, horticultural eco center. So there was someone there who was growing flowers and <coughs> uh, someone else who was producing plug plants. And I rented two acres. It, it was really, really good soil. And that was what attracted me to it. It was some fantastic soil. And I rented two acres uh, outside space. So I wasn't I wasn't growing under cover. Um, and and spent oh, I can't remember about four thousand pounds on fruit trees mainly. Uh, got them all planted and and started growing some crops in between. I planted some squash and artichokes I think initially. Um, and then unfortunately the landlord uh, went bust. Uh, and 
I was very nervous about losing all the trees. So I went and dug all the trees up again uh, and moved them to another site. Um, it, the the disastrous bit in a way, I mean, that was quite disastrous, uh, but it also coincided with the birth of my second son. And my wife was in hospital with complications for a while. And so uh, the trees were sort of last last thing on my mind, really. Uh, so I didn't protect them properly and they got eaten by rabbits and they got flooded in the field that I put it in. And so when I finally got back to them, I think out of the sort of 250 trees that there were initially or something, uh, there were about eight left that were still alive. Um, so, so it was interesting and I learned things, uh, but ultimately um, it it was not what I had imagined it was going to be. It does raise an interesting point about implementing agroforestry systems on rented land, and maybe that's something we can come back a bit later in the interview. But um, yeah, first I was thinking, I've seen your name associated to agroforestry uh, in reports uh, of the Soil Association, and it seems that you're also working on that um, theme through the organization. Can you tell us a bit about that, your work in, in there? Yeah, absolutely. So at the time of, of that, failed experiment that I just described. Um, Helen Browning joined the Soil Association at a similar time uh, as the, the chief executive. And she'd been interested in agroforestry and, uh, and, and basically had said that we, you know, we were talking about doing more agroforestry with the Soil Association. And I, I basically put my hand up and said, oh, I'd, you know, I'd like to do that bit, please. Um, and so gradually over, you know, from from around 2012, we started planning how we were going to build uh, more agroforestry work within that. Um, and sort of jumping ahead a little bit as well, that then coincided with Helen starting to do the planting on her own farm um, and asking me to help plan and, and implement that. So that was in 2016. So it's been a, a sort of gradual evolving, really, from a little bit that was of interest but not key to my role to now where I'm probably spending more time on agroforestry than I am on, on the horticulture. I'd like us to come back to uh, your work with the Soil Association, but first, it'd be great to understand what you're working on at the moment. Uh, from what I've gathered online, um, you're currently implementing agroforestry practices on Eastbrook Farm. And maybe you could give us a bit of an overview of that project. Yeah, absolutely. So Eastbrook Farm is uh, the farm that's run by Helen Browning, who's also the CEO of the Soil Association. The most of the farm is rented from the Church of England. So it's a 1500 acre. So what's that? Uh, 700 hectares, roughly. Um, uh farm it's quite it's it's quite long and thin it's it's about eight kilometers long the farm um, and because most of it is rented she wasn't initially able to plant many trees the the church of england who owned it were at the time not very keen on on trees being planted on their on their land they, they seem to be changing um, now which is great maybe partly because of what we've been doing uh, but anyway, at the time at the time she was uh, hampered really a little bit by by that. But in just before we started planning, she um, inherited some land, uh, so two hundred acres, which are sort of at the at the bottom end of of the existing farm. Uh, and so that's when we were able to start really putting trees in 
uh, on her own land and really starting to, to have the freedom, I guess, to, to implement a system or to experiment with systems that, that she wanted to. And what was her interest in planting trees in the first place, her motivations? So that's a good question. And, it, and I think it's one that anyone thinking about agroforestry, you, need, you do need to sort of go right back to that. You know, what is your main objective from planting trees? Because there's so many things they can achieve. Um, and for Helen, there were probably two main reasons and some supplementary ones. So climate and business resilience was a big thing. Um, so, you know, we know that the climate is going to throw all kinds of things at us. Um, everything's getting more extreme. We're getting colder periods, hot, well, hotter periods, some colder periods, lots of wet periods, um, lots of dry periods at weird times of year. Um, and being able to mitigate that a little bit with trees was really important. But also that longer change in the climate offers threats to existing crops and opportunities for new crops. Um, so, for instance, we've been planting things like almonds and apricots, which are not traditional in North Wiltshire. Uh, it's, uh, you know, we were... It, it, speculative I think would be a good would be a good word for it but um but who knows in 10 years time or in 20 years time the climate might have changed sufficiently that they're perfectly suited for those crops so it's it's testing the ground a little bit for some novel trees as well as trying to build resilience into the farming system and the other big driver for Helen was around animal welfare um so she's always been at the forefront of um finding ways of farming better for animals um, so and we know that you know trees provide shade shelter food you know all of those things that can improve an animal's life uh, as well as the productivity of, of the system so those were the two main drivers um, and beyond that you know things like improving soil health improving biodiversity you know are also things that she's passionate about uh, and finally I think she just loves trees <laughs> you know as probably we all do uh, and just having more trees about you know there's parts of her farm where the hedges have been ripped out you know in the period following the, the second world war there's bits where we've really got quite bare fields you know there's big fields they're exposed and when you've got livestock up on them you know it's not in the winter it's not the best place to be um, so just being able to to sort of make the landscape more treed um, was another big driver. So I hear all these reasons rooted in, in production and in, in the farm itself, but of course, both of you also have uh, another dimension to your work with the Soil Association. Is there also a dimension of a bit research and having a bit of a pilot uh, site or maybe not pilots, but, you know, a kind of showcasing these different practices or Or is it really about, you know, the farm and, and, and just the farm uh, business rationale is, is enough in a sense to justify these systems? I suspect, and I can't speak for Helen, but I suspect she would have done it anyway. Um, but I think being able to to act, as you say, exactly as an experimental farm, as a, as a demonstration farm of what to do and what not to do. <laughs> you know, we're very happy to share things that haven't worked. Um, allows us probably to be more experimental than than if we were purely looking at it for biz, you know on a very on a very basic business level um, and the work that both Helen and I do actually between the practical work and the soil association work are very interlinked 
um, and they they both inform and help each other. Um, so Helen is very keen for people to come and visit the farm. Uh, she's very keen for scientists to come and study the farm and researchers to come and study it. We've got in some of the fields we we're using um, the app Sectimenter app. Um, and we've got individual trees tagged um, and where we can find the time we're measuring, you know, yield per tree and disease and things like that. Um, so, yeah, we're, we're absolutely very keen for it to be uh, of wider use um, as, as well as helping the, the farm business. That's great, because if you can, you know, perceive knowledge as an output of the farm beyond production, it helps put a lot of mistakes in perspective because you, you kind of tell yourself at least uh, we're learning from this and so are other people. I mean, that's something we definitely relate to uh, in on Mazzy Farm. And and uh, yeah, I think it's a good way of, of keeping um, motivation even in, in tough times. Uh, now that we have quite a good understanding of, of this, maybe we should look a bit more in practice what these different systems look like. Um, so maybe you can give us an overview of the different uh, agroforestry systems you've implemented. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So so first off, it's worth saying that this part of the farm is entirely livestock at the moment. Um, so it's a silver pastoral system. It's flat and it's uh, or mostly flat. There's one field with a slope uh, and it's and it's heavy clay, most of it. So it is croppable. So there have been crops on it in the past, but it's very wet and heavy. And the uh, particularly in the spring, finding windows to cultivate the soil ready for, for crops is tricky. So, so with some of the systems that we've implemented, we're allowing the potential for cropping, even though it's currently livestock. So if I, <coughs> if I run through maybe in the order that we've, we've been planting them, that's probably the easiest way. So the first field that we planted up uh is called barnfield very imaginatively named because uh, it's next to the barn <laughs> and uh <laughs> and that that is probably you'd describe that more like an extensive orchard uh so it's relatively close spacing it's 10 meters between rows uh and we've got a mix of uh, i think around 23 or 24 species um at the last count of tree fruit nuts and bush fruit uh mostly each row is mostly one type of tree interplanted with one type of bush um, and we we had quite a lot of debates about how much to mix everything up you know because on the one hand the more diverse everything is the better from a you know a sort of biological point of view but from a management and um practical point of view it gets more complicated so in the end we we erred towards the simpler management um and it's you know it's still very diverse but but each row then is is sort of its own row uh we at the moment we're cutting that grass for silage or hay um, but what we'd like to do is to have poultry in that field we did have a little bit in the first year um, and what, ideally, what we'd like is someone to come and run a poultry enterprise. So maybe one of your listeners could uh, could come and run some poultry for us. <laughs> um, so that's 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 that field. Um, the the next field we did is going to be a grazed or a, a grazed woodland. Uh, it's so we've planted it up with native mixed native trees. 
we'll let them grow on for 10, 15 years until they're big enough to be able to cope with uh, the cattle in. And then we'll open that up and, uh, you know, thin it out a bit. Um, and eventually that will be a, a grazed woodland. Um, and there's some interesting learnings there in terms of uh, establishment and mulching, which I can maybe come back to um, later on. Then the field above that, which is around uh, 46 acres, so around 20 hectares, we've, we've got an alley cropping system in there. So we've got straight lines, straight parallel lines, 27 meters apart. Um, so that's following this kind of spacing calculations that Stephen Briggs did, where you end up with a 24 meter strip effectively, which um, because 24 is divisible by 12, 8, 6, 4, 3, 2, you can use any piece of machinery. So effectively, it, it keeps all your options open. Um, and what we've done in those in that field is we've put an electric single single strand electric fence on each side of the trees. Uh, so we've created effectively sort of 18 paddocks between the rows um, and we're now mob grazing between each row. So whereas before it was grazed, well, I think in two halves from memory, it's now done on a rotational basis. So, so one of the interesting things for me is not only have we got the changes that planting the trees are bringing, but we've also got the, the, the changes in farming practice that the that the system has has produced um and certainly in the first year or two i think helen was pretty convinced that the productivity of the grass had gone up significantly by the change in in the grazing routine uh, even before we really saw you know or likely to see any impact from the trees um, and the the trees in that field are mostly peri pear trees so peri pears are a sort of small hard pear that you use for making uh a drink like cider so they're like sort of cider apples but they're pears they grow quite big so they're big trees and we've interplanted them with willow and alder um, which will coppice um, and use either for wood chip or, or for feed for the animals uh, there's also some timber trees in that field so we've put a few oaks cherries hornbeam uh, wild service um, and there's some sea buckthorn as interplant as well so we're growing quite a lot of sea buckthorn, quite interested in that. Um, there's a developing market in the UK for it. It's still relatively unknown, but there's a couple of companies we're working with one to, uh, assuming we get enough um, harvest at some point <laughs> to supply um, to supply that. So. And the main objectives of those trees there were just to find trees uh, that had a economic markets or were, some, were there some parameters uh, given that you were selecting trees for an alley cropping system? Yeah, so it's a good question. I mean, we wanted trees that were big enough to provide some benefit to the livestock. Um, we wanted them to be productive. Um, and and when we were doing that initial research, uh, you know, peri pears were one of the things that people, that there was a demand for. So, you know, there's lots of people growing apples. And at the moment in the UK, the cider apple industry is is on its knees you know there's lots of lots well that's not quite fair it's not on its knees but there's an oversupply of apples at the moment so we didn't want to go into something that we knew was already oversupplied um so so peripest seemed like a good idea you know we knew we knew there was still a strong demand for it it's still a relatively niche product so you know there's not going to be hundreds of people going out and planting lots of peripest 
Um, so we, we were fairly confident that we would be able to sell them. Um, and then the timber trees is, you know, is a very long term, you know, as you know, very long term project. So that's not really looking about the immediate market, but we wanted something for the longer term and, and you know, some some big trees in that field. Um, so so for that, for that field, the main objective, well, the two main objectives, one was to try and dry the land out. So we're hoping that having these trees will will reduce the flooding a little bit. Um, make it drier particularly sort of in the spring when we might want to crop it um, but also then to provide shade and shelter for the animals so except in barnfield where you have like an orchard system for the two other agroforestry systems the needs of the animals that are already on the farm uh, like remain a central preoccupation and, and kind of design yeah that i'd say that's a yeah a good a good analysis yeah mm. okay um And the field that we're the sort of the next on the list, as it were, um, is it's quite a long field. So it's a, it's a kilometer long, um, and it's it, it. If you look back at the historical maps, it was actually three fields. So we're we're reinstituting the old hedges in that field and splitting it up again into three. Um, we've also put in some browsing blocks. So these are, I got sort of this concept from Steve Gabriel, the American silver pasturist. Um, and it's a tightly planted block of, in our case, we're using willow and poplar at the moment. I'm interested in mulberry as well. Um, and you effectively let it grow and then bring the livestock into that area to then they coppice it, they browse it down. So you take them in for quite a short space of time, bring them out again before they totally kill the trees we hope um so that's the idea with that we've got two two small areas that we're trialing of that um we haven't got they're not old enough yet to to have been browsed so we don't quite know how the system's going to work um but there is apparently someone doing something similar down in somerset where they've got the old willow plantations for basket weaving um so i'm hoping to to learn a bit from that yeah the idea is um once the animals come in and let's say um take some leaves And you have maybe some branches uh, that have been stripped of leaves. You just don't prune the tree at all. You just leave it as such and then leave it to continue. Yeah, that, I think that's the idea. I mean, there's, there's. Uh, I think we might experiment with different options as well. Because the other option is you you actually coppice it yourself, but let them browse it from the ground or throw it over the hedge for them. So that allows you to do it maybe in a more controlled way, but obviously has higher labor. Um, so, so what we quite like to do is maybe try and split the block into two and manage it in a slightly different way and see, you know, with a lot of the things that we're trying to do, we, we want to see if we can do at least two different management techniques or ways of doing it just to, to see what happens. Because often it's, you know, it's the mistake sometimes, isn't it, that teach you something new as well. But it's so interesting because, you know, it's a bit premature to talk about this because you're only at the beginning, but, you know, hopefully we can get you back on the podcast one day and, and get some information from that because uh, it seems certain that on terms of uh, fodder trees and, and this whole theme of um, using trees to feed animals, the question of how you bring that uh, food to them in a time-efficient manner uh, compared to you know hay or anything grass-related is so crucial and seems like such a limiting factor. So I'm, I'm really excited to hear that you're testing this out and i hope for my sake at least that you succeed and <laughs> i can inspire myself in your work 
<laughs> well, we hope so, certainly. And and I think inevitably, when you're trialing these things, it's inefficient, isn't it? You know, it's like in the same way that you know cutting hay probably was pretty inefficient when they first started doing it, but now we got combine harvesters and silage makers and all the rest of it. You know, so it's it, you know if if we if we know that it works and we know when to cut it and and how to feed it, then we can we can find ways of making it more efficient. I think. Um, but but as a general rule, I think you know if you can bring the animal to the food, <laughs> then that's likely to be cheaper and quicker than having to bring the food to the animal. But sure. While we're on the theme of uh, tree fodder, coming back to the grazed woodland system, um, have you included in that um, some fodder species? So we have, yeah, it's it's a real mixture. So we've got things like, you know, oak that will end up being, you know, probably the long-term framework. But we've got a lot of willow and, and um, so what else have we got in there? I can't even remember all the species. <laughs> but certainly there's quite a few things. I, I'm, I'm saying willow because I, I was there yesterday and the willow is the, sort of the one thing that seems to be doing the best um in that in that plantation we we planted it in 2018 and uh which was very dry in the uk i don't know um about the rest of europe but um and we lost quite a lot of plants uh and it surprised me in some ways that the willows were the ones that survived because you would think that maybe they wouldn't and i don't know whether they just managed to get their roots down quicker um and therefore survived so there was even even in the height of the drought there was water in the very lower levels um but we but where the trees hadn't properly established we we did lose a lot and we had um, i mentioned earlier the sort of accidental experiment i know we're going to talk about wood chip in a bit but one of the things that sort of really got me excited was was we we dumped a load of wood chip that we'd made over the fence into this bit of the gray's woodland sort of meaning to go and spread it out and mulch a whole load of trees and, and never got around to it so, so there was a little patch of trees in the corner that had sort of nearly a meter of wood chip mulch around them um, and you would think that that wouldn't be great for them but those trees are now sort of nearly three meters tall and the ones next to them planted on the same day with only a sprinkle of mulch uh, are only sort of up to my waist so there's there's a real sort of powerful um uh demonstration of of the 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 power of kind of keeping in particularly in that year i think the keeping in the water and and keeping the weeds down when you say one meter you mean one meter thick i mean yeah the the mulch was a meter deep wow in yeah. in places you know which is ridiculous <laughs> you know, i'm not i wouldn't i wouldn't replicate it but in in that instance uh, it happened to be just what the trees needed and your uh, analysis of it is you think it comes down to moisture retention or um, wheat suppression, as you're suggesting? I think in that year, I suspect the main factor was water retention. Um, we know that mulching obviously keeps down weeds. Uh, it can modulate extremes of temperature as well. So it might well be that in that very hot year, it kept the, the roots cooler, which enabled them to grow more um well, i don't think we had a particularly cold winter so i think you know the keeping the soil warm wouldn't have been a particular benefit there's also you know we also know that the wood chip mulch boosts the soil biology 
but I don't think in the first year after planting that would have been the main factor. I, I suspect it was mainly moisture. Well, you are right. We're going to talk more about wood chips. But before we do, uh, I just wanted to finish a bit this uh, understanding really um, the different systems. And um, if I understand you correctly, then the um, grazed uh, woodland, the main purpose there is uh, shelter and, and uh, shade for the animals and really making good grazing out of grass, but, you know, using the tree as more a climatic, um, let's say, how could you say that? Buffer, I guess. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think we we might end up uh, coppicing or pollarding some of the willow if if we think that it we can do it and it's useful and there's and the stock will benefit from it. So we might end up managing some of the trees within that system but mostly it will be just established trees to provide shade, shade and shelter well since i i feel this passion in you for uh worships, <laughs> i think we should uh we shouldn't avoid the, the topic any longer um maybe you could actually before we go specifically into wood chips uh tell us about you know your strat strategy in terms of mulching i don't know if you've only put wood chips or if you've tested out different uh techniques or uh, you know materials to suppress weeds etc we have we've tested a few um and i would say at this point as well that i was quite heavily influenced by um an american researcher called david granite stein who's well worth looking out for and he's done quite a lot of research on weed control in orchard systems in the states um and i came across a presentation of his that looked at various strategies um and in in all the cases that involved uh, an organic mulch uh, and particularly wood chip the yields from the trees and the establishment was made up for the extra cost of putting it down um so that that immediately kind of made me uh, interested um and i'd had had sort of vague various i'd had various experiences with wood chip using it as a mulch in pots and using it very well composted wood chip uh, as a soil conditioner so it's sort of in the back of my head I had it as an interesting product um, but when we started establishing the trees at Eastbrook we I tried some mulch mats so the the hessian mulch mats and then also they did deliver some hessian uh, with a plastic backing one by mistake that I hadn't ordered which I tried as well and I have to say I'd really really dislike mulch mats i would not recommend them they for us anyway they they provided this fantastic home for voles a lovely waterproof roof and if you then mulch on top of that you're insulating their home for them um, so you're giving them this perfect little microclimate under there and then they can munch away at your roots uh, without any fear of predators what we found is if you put the wood chip directly onto the soil uh, I don't know if it's because it falls into the runs of the voles or they just don't like the texture of it, but we've got very little damage where we mulch directly on the soil. Um, so so those were our two main strategies. Um, obviously, being um, certified organic, we couldn't use uh, herbicides even if we'd wanted to. Um, and the other options really was, was strimming, which, you know, we did a little bit of, but you risk damaging the trees and it's just so expensive. So we've mostly avoided that. 
Um, so we've come down now really to trying to get uh, a really short, um, a short grass or whatever's growing there initially, um, and then a good mulch uh, of wood chip to get it established. We're, one thing we are interested in trying is um, cultivating uh, and, and uh, harrowing a strip, which we then sow with a low growing uh, grass seed mix. I'm still, I'm still nervous with our soil that that, that won't give as good establishment as, as the mulch, but it is something that, that I think we should look at because one of the problems with the, the wood chip mulch is it doesn't control perennial weeds very well. So we do get thistles and docks come up through it, which, you know, are a short term problem because once the trees are big enough, then we'll be able to graze or mow in between them. Um, but it's for a lot of farmers having that level of weed in their field, I think would be a problem. Um, you know, we, we do look at it and think, oh, that looks really messy, but look at all the goldfinches on it, you know, and the butterflies and, you know, we've got hares nestling in there. So, you know, the, the wildlife that it brings in is amazing, but equally, uh, you know, there's definitely an element of, of knowing that farmers will be put off if if they look at that and go oh is this what is this what it means if i have to plant trees on my farm i'm going to have all of these weeds and other farmers are going to be looking at me thinking what a weedy field one issue we had with uh, mulch was cooch grass and all the kind of rhizobial uh, grasses i don't know if you have it in if in the climate in the uk because we, we do it. oh yeah <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> and we really found that when you exclude you know all others um the ones that are able to kind of move laterally um really came in then whether that's detrimental or not or more than another one like we don't really know but that's definitely something like um something against not against but yeah uh, a problem with with the mulching we saw yeah i would agree i mean i i think the it really depends on what you're trying to grow so i think for most trees it's not a problem um and you know or, or it's a minor problem for some for some of the crops i mean things like we have got raspberries in a couple of rows and you know some of the perennial weeds for raspberries are a nightmare um, and that's where the chickens actually really came came into their own they were brilliant amongst the raspberries um, whereas you know even on something like sea buckthorn um, it's big enough and vigorous enough that it could cope with cooch grass pretty well and you know we might have to strim around them once a year just to stop them getting too out of control um but we're we're hoping I, I mean the other thing to say about woodchip is you know we're not intending to mulch every year it's very much an establishment technique um so it's not it's not a permanent ongoing management tool and i think there's a there's a potential risk of of you know nutrient imbalance if you if you keep piling on woodchip every year so it's you know it's it's two or three applications during the first four or five years i think is how we're seeing it Uh, I'm curious about, you know, you mentioned the study where saying that um, uh, the increase in yields and growth kind of counterbalance the cost, but I assume that only applies for kind of high value production, such as fruit trees, um, and then wouldn't necessarily be the case for kind of more biomass or wild species that you'd be planting. Yeah, it's a good question. I'm sure you're right. I'm sure I'm sure that effect is 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 definitely more in high value crops. 
but I mean, again, what we've the speed of establishment. I mean, it depends what what you want what you want it for. So if you know if if in fact all you want is shade to stop your cows overheating in the summer, well, actually having that barrier a year earlier, you might well find that you've paid that back. You know, if your if your milk production goes up by ten percent, that might well pay for the cost of the wood chipping. So I think I think it's hard to know um, on some of those lower value stuff. Um, but certainly the the speed of establishment and initial growth that I've seen in, in a lot of our plantings using the, the mulch, I think would justify it in most circumstances. Um, but it would be interesting to it would be interesting to do those figures on the lower value trees for sure. And uh, some organic orchards use uh, some kind of light tillage to suppress weeds. Was that never an option then for you? We did consider it. Um, I mean, again, interesting looking at David Granitstein's figures, the tillage didn't do that well. You know, it was good at controlling weeds, but effectively you're destroying the soil every time you go through it. Um, it's, you know, it's quite it's quite destructive really and and the machinery that you need to do it is quite expensive i think we were looking at eighteen thousand pounds or something to buy to buy the machine and we just it didn't quite fit right with us for the system the other thing for us in a, particularly where we've got the electric fencing is we can't get close enough to the trees to to do that operation anyway um so in, in some of the situations it wasn't even going to be viable And now that you've okay, you've understood that wood chips um, are probably your best option. Uh, do you use it systematically as you plant new systems out? And uh, what is the kind of typical amount you lay on the tree uh, for it to be effective? So we do. It's a short answer, um, assuming that we've got enough of it. So we're quite lucky. We've got uh, a couple of tree surgeons that that give us their wood chip, and then we also produce some of our own. Um, so we, as, as we go forward, we didn't do very much planting last year. Um, we had a, um, what do you call it? A consolidation year, um, which was quite useful sometimes, I think, to take a step back. <laughs> For sure. Um, but, uh, yeah, we're certainly planning going forward to mulch where we can. It's certainly looking at... Is I've I've just written this book on wood chip, so I've done quite a lot of research into various um, studies about thickness of mulch, uh, and the consensus from various studies <laughs> seems to show so about 10 or 15 centimeters deep is you see any less than 10, and you don't really get enough weed control effect. Um, the you can go more, obviously, um, but how much wood chip have you got and how much time have you got to put it down and you know so it it becomes a uh, probably more, you know more expensive than it's worth doing up to a point so so 10 to 15 centimeters is is the normal amount but <clears throat> it does depend a little bit on the wood chip um and you know how small the chips are what species it is um how well rotted it is so there's a few things that might affect how deep you put it on And for applying the wood chip, uh, do you, you're just able to drive in, in between the tree lines and kind of do it in an uh, effective manner uh, with a big trailer, or how do you proceed? So we've done it in two main ways. Uh, for the, where the trees are closer together, we've done it with a tractor and a trailer um, and forks <laughs> shoveling off the back. 
which again is expensive, but you can be very accurate. Um, and particularly if you've got a tractor that you can load the trailer up with at the, you know, at the, at the heap, that makes it much quicker. Uh, the other way we've done it is with uh, using a silage feeder wagon, um, which worked brilliantly uh, as long as the chip is very even. So where we'd produced our own wood chip from the willow and we knew that it was all the right size and didn't have anything else in it, um, that worked brilliantly. And the the farm manager just sort of put a little extension on the distributor and we sort of hooked it over the electric fence and drove down. And that once we got the, the speed right and the, the how much was coming out, that worked fantastically. And we did a whole row, you know, in, I don't know, 400 meter row we did in 15 minutes. Um, so that was great. The uh, But as soon as you get the wood chip from the tree surgeons, where it's different species, there's bits of long branch in it. You know, we've had the occasional chainsaw helmet and pruning saws left in the in the pile. So the farm manager, quite rightly, was rather reluctant to uh, risk his machine with that. And how does that perform as mulch then? It, perform, it performs fine. Yeah, chainsaw helmets are great. You just lay them around the tree. One thing that pops into my mind is that, you know, at the moment, um, anyone using wood chips, or at least, you know, uh, you're lucky enough to be surrounded by tree surgeons. And since you're innovating and maybe uh, not that many people are uh, using wood chips, you're able to access all that biomass. But if we were to imagine that uh, wood chips were to become a mainstream, let's say, um, how do you see um, the possibility of scaling such a technique? Uh, because all of a sudden, you know, there'll be much less um, matter available and it'd be a real, real issue. Yeah, it's, I think that's a really good question. I think it's all I think it might even be starting to happen already. So I've heard in some parts of the country it's getting harder to get hold of wood chip. I think part of that is the is the biomass industry, which is sucking a lot of wood chip. But I think also where it had been seen as a as just a waste, um, people are beginning to to see its value. Um, obviously, after they've read my book, the demand will go through the roof. So you know, <laughs> um, but uh, I th- the I think I think for those for farmers, I think we need to be starting to think about producing our own um, and and building it into our agroforestry systems. That's to me, I think where where it becomes a sustainable resource that you know whether you're using it to build your soil health or use it for livestock bedding or you know use it for mulching but actually thinking about okay well I'm planting I'm going to plant some rows of coppice specifically for that purpose and I'm going to manage them for that purpose it becomes more efficient um, and and it you you know exactly what's in it. So you know one of the risks of all this stuff from the tree surgeons is you don't quite know what's in it. You know probably it's all fine, but it might have some diseased wood in it. Might have you know something that you just haven't seen. You know we did get a bag of rubble in it once. You know where you just say oh really you know and and it's that it's not a massive problem, but it's still something that's out of your control. And I think as farmers we should any input to our farm is a, is an area of risk and if we can be producing our own in a controlled way where we know what's going into it and and there's also it's not an area that's been that well researched but there's there is evidence that single species wood chips can have particular effects so we did a 
um, innovative farmers field lab with the soil association looking at using willow wood chip to help control scab in apples so the salicylic acid uh, which is aspirin basically um, seems to stimulate an immune reaction in trees against the disease and make them better able to withstand scab um, and i suspect there's lots of things like that that are going on within you know the the, the wood chip exodus or the whatever it is that, that we could start to play around with if we've if we've got control and at the moment most wood chip just comes in as you know a whole mixed load of stuff so that's that's where i think it gets interesting and where it fits particularly into agroforestry systems um, is giving the farmer their own valuable resource you know it brings the be- all the other benefits that we've talked about in terms of biodiversity animal welfare soil health etc cetera, etc cetera, um, as well as that that on-farm resource that, that might replace something else that you had to buy in. And how have you designed that future supply on the farm then? Well, we haven't yet is the short answer, <laughs> um, but we are talking about it. So we have, you know, it's, it's a big farm. There's quite a lot of trees. Um, there's, there's actually an 18 acre woodland that Helen planted up uh, nearly 20 years ago. Um, uh, so there's there's actually quite a lot of wood at the moment that we could be chipping, but equally we don't want you know it's really important that wood is left in situ as well. We don't want to mop up every bit of tree and turn it into wood chip because that's not helpful either. Um, so part of it is identifying trees on the farm that might supply that. So we have, for instance, a lot of willows along our riverbank that historically were pollarded. Um, so that's quite a good start. And that's where we got a lot of uh, wood chip from two years ago. Um, but then I think it's also building in these very specific. So the, so far we haven't put them in, but it might be that our next alley planting, for instance, is specifically done for, for wood chip. Um, but we ha- I would say we haven't yet done those calculations about um, about what we want to use it for, how much we'll need and how much it could supply um so for instance helen's got you know there are two dairies on on their farm they've got two dairy herds at each end of the farm um at the moment they're not using uh, wood chip for for bedding but they they could be um but that would be a whole you know a whole another project to work out well exactly how much wood chip would we need where would we get it from do we have enough trees already what you know what do we need to plant so so it's a I think for, particularly for a big farm, it's a big it's a big decision because you need to make sure that, you know, if you've got however many animals are in the two herds, I can't remember, 300 dairy herds, you know, you've got to make sure you've got a good supply to make sure you don't run out. And it's got to be good quality and you know where it comes from. So. And I think the design is so important uh, in that respect because, for example, the area where I am in France is a mountainous area away from, uh, you know, any cereal production. So they're having to... Um, truck in uh, all the straw for the bedding and it makes a lot of sense to be using wood chips but then once you've said that to actually harvest in a time efficient uh, way wood chips and to have it at a cost where it's competitive with straw at the moment is really difficult because I think it's it's one thing to design and think out a system which is made to be harvested easily uh, easy to mechanize you can bring a big chipper in and, and try and do things on a, on a bigger scale But then, you know, going uh, here and there and hedges and, and trying to pull branches to the chipper, it's a bit what we've done on Mazzy Farm in Greece. And I can tell you, um, if you measure the price of the cubic meter of wood chips, 
it is it is uh, if you're producing it yourself and not just you know taking advantage of uh, the residue of another activity such as wood surgeons it's a big theme so i think that's that's really interesting actually designing these uh efficient smart ways of harvesting that biomass um is yeah crucial yeah you're absolutely right and i think the other bit of that picture is is may is 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 how farmers can collaborate um so on on your own you know maybe you can't afford the machinery to make it happen but if there's a group of 10 of you or you know one of you sort of acts as a contractor or there's a cooperative then actually you can start to introduce some of that scale um but it in, in you know particularly in hilly areas where it's not so easy to harvest efficiently um it does it becomes a challenge for sure mm. Well, as much as we could uh, sit here and talk about wood chips all night, um, there are a few other questions on my list. Um, so the next one, I guess, is, you know, when you think trees and you think livestock, they're not necessarily an easy uh, combination and easy things to put together, especially when the trees are young. So my question now is, uh, how have you dealt with protecting the trees um, from the livestock and how has that kind of integration of young trees into uh, a livestock business uh, been? So we do spend quite a lot of time talking about protection and fencing. Um, and ultimately it's, it's a discussion about cost and risk. Um, how many trees can you afford to lose? Uh, and at what point is it worth spending lots of money on expensive fencing and tree guards? Um, so we've done and we've we've worked, I think, at both extremes. Um, so when we we planted up a few of the alleys um, in the first year as an experiment just to see how they grew uh, and we hadn't put in the electric fencing. So we just put in um, individual tree guards, six, six foot, so two meter tree guards with a post. We have a lot of deer. Um, so deer were our main concern. Uh, and those guards seem to work really well. But in that first year, we hadn't got the livestock there. Um, so year two in that field, we put in the electric fence. So we've got a single strand of electric fence at about waist height. Um, and that's a set, set up to a mains electric, so 10,000 volts. Um, and it's, we've got one, one strand on each side of the tree row. Uh, and that works really well. We've had no damage uh, from the cows. They, I think in hindsight, we would have the fences slightly closer. So we, we've got them 1.5 meters from the tree on each side. I think we could go down to 1.25 meters or possibly even one um, because we've ended up with quite a wide strip where they're not grazing under the wire, which is uh, a weed problem for us. Um, so ideally, what we'd want is that wood chip strip and then grazed. And at the moment, we've got a grass bit in between that, which is the worst weed bit. Uh, some fields, so barn field, which, which has got all the, the different fruit and nuts in and the grazed woodland, we've deer fenced the entire field. Uh, the grazed woodland, we got a grant to do that. Um, and barn field, we just decided that the value and number of the trees in the in the field was worth spending the money on um, we also rabbit fence that field because we got a lot of rabbits which seemed to work for the first two years but then they found a way in as they tend to uh, so we then ended up having to go around and put and 
spiral guard on each of the trees in that field as well. Um, and speaking to other people, that's quite a theme where you think you've done it well enough and then you have to go back and do it again. So one of the things I would say is uh, to buy the most expensive, biggest stake you can. Um, so in, certainly in the first field, we put in the recommended stake and it was useless and we've had to go back and restake pretty much every tree. Um, and we should have just spent the money in the first place to do it. Um, the so yes it's 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 spending as much as you can um without without sort of what's what's the best way of putting it spend spending as much as you can without wasting your money you know because you can put too much protection in um and the question you have to ask yourself is how many of these trees can i afford to lose um, and, and where we had a big field with fewer numbers of trees and less valuable trees, we made it, we figured we could lose quite a few before we had to spend 25,000 pounds on deer fencing. <laughs> oh. But so, so it was, it was more interesting to put deer fencing with the cost that comes with it than spending on good quality tree guards on each individual tree. So, yes, yeah, so it's a good question. I mean, how, how good a quality tree guard does it have to be um and the the beauty in a way of the deer guard is it gives you that confidence uh, that, that they just they can't get in until the trees are big enough um whereas with individual tree guards you're always going back and having to check you know maybe maybe it was more expensive than it needed to be um but when you're spending, you know, in that in that field, a lot of the trees were 15, 20 pounds each. Um, so that, you know, once you've spent money to plant them in establishment and you've got the cost of that, that adds up. You know, we've got 800 or so trees in that field. Um, I can't quite remember what that figure is, but 800 times 20, you know, it's quite a lot. Um, so... I, I mean, I'm not saying we got it right. I'm not saying we made the right calculation every time, but it's, but it's thinking, and and often you you make a decision. It's easy to say, oh, we can't afford to do that, and then two years down the line, you you realise that not spending that money up front is costing you more money now. So, as an example, when we talked about the electric fencing on the alleys there was some discussion, well, we could use temporary electric fencing and just move it every time we needed to move the animals. And the farm manager said, well, hang on, if we have to do that, we'll never move it. We won't get around to it. Whereas if I've got permanent electric fencing with a bungee at the end of each alley, when I want to move the cows, I just lift the bungee and move them. So we'll move them all the time. And so the management will be better because it's easy. Whereas if I've got to faff around moving 400 meters of electric fence every time i want to move them it won't happen or it'll happen less frequently and it will cost more money and you know labor's expensive so it's, it's those decisions in a way um and i don't i don't think there's necessarily any right answer i mean we're interested now in these cactus guards as well which i think seem to have come down a bit in price if i'm right um so i think we were looking at them at the weekend and sort of 13 pounds each um, so yes, you know, actually you could buy quite a lot of individual guards at 13 pounds before you got to 
ten thousand pounds on a on a deer fence. Yeah. So it's it's um yeah, I think I think it's and I think I think the the available products are changing all the time as well. I think that there's more things available now than there were five years ago even. So So actually although my question started with the livestock, it's not the the wildlife is much more of a challenge than livestock is really because you've just dealt with that with a single line permanent fence which isn't that expensive and then you're yeah yeah absolutely so i mean because we've only got cattle at the moment in that farm we single strand is fine i think from memory that was one pound 20 a meter um which compares to 12 pounds a meter for deer fencing <laughs> so you know significantly cheaper if we had sheep there as well we'd probably want a double strand so that would put it up by 20p a meter or something um but because yeah it's it's quite cheap the electric fencing um and and you can plan for the cattle in a way um whereas wildlife is is sometimes less you know less able to plan so we've you know we're keeping out the big deer with that electric fence that works quite well but we also have muntjac deer and we have hares so we do still have to guard the individual trees behind that electric fencing uh, or certainly until they're until they're bigger one theme that I find interesting is uh, knowledge and, you know, the relationship to knowledge when you start working with agroforestry, because first of all, it requires a whole new skill set. And it seems that in your case, um, they've kind of tackled that by hiring you and, you know, you're a dedicated person on the farm. Um, but, you know, how, how are you, how is that new skill set um, kind of articulating with the rest of the farm and how is it to integrate different techniques and different viewpoints on an already functioning farm? A fascinating question um, because because I loved that interaction. Um, and I think, again, I'm lucky in that Helen has a, quite a large farm. Um, so they already have lots of enterprises. They're used to a complicated farming system. Having said that, you know, I think there probably were people on the farm team that were questioning her sanity when she started planting trees all over the place um and and understanding the effect that your trees have on the rest of the farming system i think is really important um i mean i talked earlier about the fact that with the alleys we change then to a rotational grazing system and i think one of the things that you know although although the farm manager at the time perhaps wasn't that excited about having trees planted all across his field he had been really keen to to trial rotational grazing and so we in a way we sort of we enabled that and created a system i mean obviously you can do it without planting trees across the farm but in this instance it opened that opportunity it sort of almost forced a move into that um that hopefully then is is beneficial in the long term um the i think the the opportunity for new entrants into into agroforestry i think is is one of the things actually that really excites me at the moment so a lot of farmers want trees a lot of farmers uh you know some farmers are really keen to do it themselves and learn about it but a lot of them uh aren't you know or or love the idea of it but don't want to do it themselves <clears throat> and so being able to bring in people either that already have some experience or that that are just keen to focus on the trees um, is such a great opportunity. Um, and I think where, 
one of the things we're seeing at the Soil Association is a real interest in people wanting to come into farming, um, particularly into horticulture, but into farming as well. Um, but it's not easy to find a way in. It's it's not always easy to get the experience um, or to persuade people to let you do things. And I think with with trees as an opportunity to learn in a in a lower risk way. You know, if you if you've got to deal with animals, you've got to know what you're doing, or the animal suffers. Uh, and even with with veg, you know, it mostly needs looking after on a day to day or week to week basis. Whereas trees are pretty forgiving. You know, you have periods of the year when they need stuff, but most of the time you can just let them get on with it. Um, and that's quite a nice way of, of bringing new people or part-time farmers or, or, you know, just people, community groups maybe that want to run trees. So there's ways of creating partnerships on farm that I think is not so easy in, in some other sectors or, or crops. It's interesting how you approach it because, you know, farmers already have to master so many skills just doing their everyday job. And then, you know, agroforestry kind of uh, needs you to add another layer and new skills. And, and, and you really see the way of um, tackling that through bringing new people in. And I think it's really interesting because it's not often an answer we hear. And of course, it has its own uh, individual issues, uh, like every time you bring in human relationships and social structures. But it's it's definitely a really interesting way of looking at it. Well, we know that diverse farming systems are more complicated to run, but in theory, they're also more resilient. I think they tend to be more interesting. Um, a farm, you know, farm the size of Helen's, you know, if it was just an arable farm, it could potentially employ two people and some big tractors. And instead, I think Helen was saying there's 28 people employed on the farm. You know, so. Th that's a much, much more exciting place to be than than fields of cereals that are being shipped off to the commodity market. Instead, we've got, you know, we go up and we see our produce in the in the pub or, you know, it's, it, it just becomes more interesting. And I think it's more interesting for the farmer. And I think if you can if you could make it work financially. But again, there's there's opportunities to share that risk and reward, um, you know, we're looking at maybe renting out the trees you know we establish the trees and then we rent them out to someone to make an enterprise and, and you know it can be share farming it can be a subletting you know there's all kinds of arrangements there's some really interesting work at dartington um in in devon looking at different um tenancy models of, of how you sort of cope with that multi-layered ownership potentially um but those are technical difficulties in a way and i think I think the opportunity to to open up the countryside, to open up farming to a much wider range of people is, is I think it's exciting anyway. Mm. But we do need a project like yours, um, you know, sharing that knowledge because uh, just last time I was talking with uh, the director of the French Agroforestry Association and he was, you know, putting the limiting, the main limiting factor to the lack of expertise and the lack of, enough people who have that knowledge uh, that are able to, um, you know, manage successfully agroforestry systems or advise them. So I think there's a huge um, amount of work to be done on, on developing those skills and properly training uh, these new people that we can bring on then to farms. Well, and if it's a problem in France where you've been doing it for much longer than we have, then yeah, that problem is, is more so, I would say, in the UK. Yeah, there's... <laughs> 
there's not many people that have been doing it. You know, I'm still very new to this, really, you know, relatively speaking. So it's um, we're all on a very steep learning curve. Mm. And, you know, still on that uh, theme of knowledge, uh, I was wondering, you know, um, how do you personally manage to keep track with all these learnings and that knowledge generation? Uh, if it's not clear, the reason why I ask that is, you know, when you're constantly testing new things out and, um, you know, you have numer numerous tests and a lot of knowledge is being generated, it's not always easy to keep track of that, you know, while also managing all the practical aspects. Um, what, what makes you think I'm keeping track? <laughs> <laughs> uh yeah i'm not sure that i am keeping track is the short answer so we i'm you know i i'm fairly typical i think of farmers and i'm not very good at keeping records you know i talk about the importance of keeping records but i'm not that good <laughs> the the app that i'm using helps a bit um so it's, it's relatively easy to record stuff but you still have to record it you still have to do that work um so so i guess my my solution i think is to talk about it a lot and hope that i see it reflected back at me at some point <laughs> um and i and i think the trick sometimes is is understanding what the what the important bit is but of course that might be different for different people so you know what's what's sort of struck me as being really interesting or really important actually might be different to what someone else spots and that's why it's important that that we're open and that we share what we're doing you know i want as many people to come around the farm as possible partly because i want to share what's worked and what hasn't but but also i learn every time someone comes around the farm they'll spot something else that i haven't noticed or ask me a question about why i've done something And I and I have to think. Well, oh, that's a good question. Why did I do that? You know, <laughs> sometimes, sometimes it isn't something I've done. Sometimes it's something that's happened by chance. Or, um, but yeah, how you keep track of it, I think, is it, it's a good question. And I think, I think the more we can get researchers properly involved on farm, um, the better. I think. I think so much, so much research is divorced from the reality of farming um, and bringing bringing the research properly onto farm, measuring things that farmers really want and need, I think, uh, I think is a better, is, is a good way as well of keeping track. Um, effectively, it allows that collaboration to properly record what's happening. Otherwise, uh, you know, always it's me just whether I happen to make a note of something one year or not, <laughs> or else it's gone out of my sieve-headed sieve brain. Um. Yeah, a bit linked to this um, question of knowledge, there's the idea of, you know, diversity on the farm. And you've already mentioned that there's a great diversity in the orchard, but you've also added a whole uh, other lot of trees that you've planted in different systems. Um, that's obviously a lot of different types of trees and of different behaviors and the different patterns to keep track of. And I'm just wondering, you know, how are you finding um, working with so much diversity Um, I know there's advantages to it on an agronomic level, but as you mentioned before, there's also a lot of complexities that come with diversifying so much. Uh, yeah, the answer is that I'm I'm a, an amateur of all of them, um, and I think I think that's probably inevitable. Um, so I've always been a generalist. So when I was growing vegetables, I was growing, you know, for 
box schemes and, and farm shops. I was growing 50, 60 different crops. Um, so inevitably, I'm never going to be as good at growing any a particular one as a specialist in that. Um, and the the other risk of having so much diversity and complexity is that it's actually just much harder to keep track of everything. Um, I mean, I have a time challenge as well. So I, at the moment, I work half a day a week at the farm. Um, I started doing a day a week. I'm now doing half a day. <clears throat> so that doesn't allow me enough time to check every tree, you know, every week, which is really what I should be doing if, if I was managing it um, in a way that a commercial orchard grower would manage. And I think I think what we're trying to demonstrate is not necessarily best practice for each particular crop. Well, for sure, it's not best practice for each particular crop. So that was certainty. Um, but it's, you know, what we what we want to demonstrate is that you can have a low input, um, and potentially, I mean, I say this advisedly, but potentially, sort of lowish skill system, um, and still be productive and useful. So, you know, as an example, with my almond trees. Um, I mean, apart from the fact I don't think there are any very many um, expert almond growers in the UK anyway, or certainly not in UK conditions. There's your um, opportunity to be the first yeah. almond grower of the UK. It's the advantage of niche uh, climate change yeah. crops. <laughs> But I, you know, I'm, I don't know what I'm doing with almonds because, because I, you know, I've never planted them before. I mean, I know a little bit more than I did four years ago. Um, So, you know, I know roughly what they want and what they like, which isn't what the English climate gives them most of the time. Um, so, that, you know, two, two years running, we had a late frost, which hit the blossom. You know, we know that's the main one of the main risks of growing in the UK. My hope is that, you know, the risk of frost in spring is getting less uh, as climate change happens. So we might get that less often, uh, but it still happens. This year, we got an even later frost, and not only did the blossom get hit, but the foliage got hit as well. You know, well, oh, man. Mm. <laughs> and they're getting peach leaf curl disease, which the first year I picked off every leaf. And, uh, you know, we got 60 trees. It's not it's not a big, but it's enough that, you know, quite quickly you can't start picking off every leaf. But they seem to grow through it. So, so what I'm growing, I hope, is a is a is a low maintenance crop that occasionally will give me a crop of almonds mm. and if i'm lucky it will give me a crop one in three years or maybe eventually two in three years or, or three in four years um if it's also giving me uh, a habitat for the chickens when we've got them or it's improving my soil health or it's draining the land then the profitability or the success of any particular tree crop is is less crucial i mean of course we still want it to work so I, you know i do still prune you know some of the trees um and and i you know i look after them and i, I try to notice if they've got a problem but the reality is i'm not going to spend a lot of time spraying them or you know giving them an intensive management regime that you would do if you were a purely commercial orchard of that of that particular tree that you had to make your entire living from so they perform a slightly different function and so in a way my my generalist approach 
potentially becomes an advantage because I'm looking at the entire system and I'm looking at how the soil is and how the animals are underneath. And, you know, so I'm, I'm trying to take in that whole picture rather than thinking that I need to be the world expert almond grower. The other aspect of diversity is that, you know, once you have all these crops, uh, which is already a success, you know, um, then you have to sell them. And in your case, that's those additional productions are easily absorbed and sold through the existing commercial channels? Yes, yeah, so certainly so far, uh, everything we've produced um, has been sold through the village pub, which um, Helen's partner runs. Uh, the I suspect at some point uh, in, the, in maybe two or three years, we'll have more than they can cope with, uh, at which point we have... Uh, we have options. So there are a number of local box schemes, for instance, that we could potentially sell produce to. There's a agroforestry specific market stall in London um, that, uh, again, might take some of the more unusual stuff. Uh, we also, Helen has a lot of experience in creating products Um and marketing so it might well be that we then start to look at creating you know juices or value-added products um that again could be sold through the the farm shop and the pub um in the village so there's i think we're in an unusual position in that sense and that and that there's already some market opportunities there but also an understanding within the business about product creation and marketing that that not necessarily every farm would have. The, the other last thing I wanted to clarify a bit is that you mentioned that at the moment you have between half a day and one day on the farm. So you actually kind of oversee a lot of the design and the strategy, but then you have uh, other people on the farm also kind of uh, helping in the management, like I guess mowing and all the maintenance that has to go with it. Yeah, you're right. You mm. spotted that I don't do any of the work. <laughs> <laughs> That's not what I meant. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, so at the moment, uh, Paul, um, my colleague, does uh, a lot of the actual work. Um, so, I mean, again, we're trying to set it up as relatively low maintenance. Um, so the main jobs are, are mowing, um, mowing and strimming and sort of remulching some of the trees at the moment. Um, and then obviously harvesting and a bit of pruning. Um, but as the system expands, um, we're, we're definitely needing to find people to take on bits of it. Um, so, so it becomes, and again, I think this is where the opportunities for new entrants come in. You know, we now have in Barnfield, for instance, we now have eight acres of established trees just about to start coming into some kind of full production um that could be a fantastic opportunity for someone to come in and, and run um so so we're the i think you're right the, the in a way my role is around the development and new design um but we do also need to make sure that we properly maintain and, and manage them and, and make them fulfill their potential and that's an interesting challenge which is becoming more important as the as the mm. system establishes and i guess to always have the the management and the design closely linked together because if you're ever going to be improving the systems and 
it seems that every year uh, with experience, you're learning things and, and putting new things into place. Um, it's really valuable to have those aspects working closely together. Yeah, it's crucial. And uh, uh, we, we're moving more slowly than we had initially anticipated. So when we looked initially at the 200 acres, we thought we might plant within five or six years. And after five years, we've planted just under half of it. Um, but actually, that was quite a deliberate decision to slow down and to learn. Um, and it's also an expensive business. So, you know, there's a cost factor to that as well. Um, but we, every year is different, you know, so we've had wet years, we've had dry years, we're starting to understand what does well. The cherries initially did really well. And then we had a horrible wet year and, you know, a quarter of the field, they all looked horrible and started mm. dropping down because they didn't like it. So, so, you know, let's, let's really understand what's still doing well after five years. And then we, you know, we can be pretty certain that we can plant that with confidence. Um, and we, you know, we're refining our management techniques where, you know, we invested in a small flail mower um, this year to just to speed up some of the, the keeping the, the grass down a little bit. And in some ways it didn't matter because we would get the big kit in, but you're not in control of that. You know, we're, we're at the mercy of the weather and, and, you know, we're, we're one little field at the edge of the farm. It's never the priority for the, um, for the rest of the farm stuff. So having our own little flail mower means we can sort of pop out when we need to and, and, you know, actually get around the field. So it's, as as the as the system progresses and become and starts to bring in a little bit of income as well, so we can justify spending a bit more money on it. I think it will become easier to manage, um, but it's it's part of it, I guess, is understanding when to invest and what what to invest in, and you know how you know, how valuable these crops are. We did a twenty five year business plan at the start, which you know in some ways is is almost not worth the paper it's written on, but it does give you an idea of cash flow and, and when you might expect income to come in. Um, but yeah. Okay. And, um, you know, we started the conversation, you, you mentioned uh, mistakes and, you know, uh, that's definitely almost uh, some of the most interesting things that we can discuss uh, because there's so much, uh, so many things that can be learned for our listeners. And, do you have any kind of standout mistakes or some that you think would be particularly relevant uh, to people uh, setting up systems out there that you'd like to share with our listeners? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I guess the one, one of them is sort of almost a mistake and almost not in that it was, it was planned that it would be a mistake, which is the fact that we planted so many different things, knowing that some of them would fail. Um, and, and I guess one of the bits of advice is, to plant a few things immediately, even if you're not sure what you're going to be doing, actually just plant a few trees of a few different species and see what grows, particularly if you're being more experimental. So, so one thing you can do is look around you and see what's growing well. But if you're trying to grow unusual things, you might have no idea. I think it's worth trialing it. I think the climate particularly is changing so quickly. The, the historical wisdom about what works and what doesn't work is not always worth listening to anymore. But, you know, we've certainly had some trees fail um, and some of them predictably so, like the cherries in the heavy clay. 
but then almonds are not supposed to like clay either and they're doing very well uh, you know although they're not fruiting that well they're growing very well so that's one thing the other thing we so we as i said we've got this heavy clay it's quite hard to plant into it's quite hard work so we created a slit using a subsoiler so a, a single slit through the soil to plant into which worked brilliantly it was really easy to plant speeded it up no end and then we had this really dry year in 2018 and the crack opened up where we'd created the slit uh, and we had a meter and a half deep crack at, at some points i mean it was really really deep and of course this poor little tree is sitting there at the top of the slit with no water and no root development so so we definitely learned from that what what i think we'll probably do i think we would still create the slit but what we would do is plant maybe 15 centimeters to one side of it so that you're not right in that slit and the other thing we found was the trees that we planted in january mostly survived the ones that we planted in march beginning of march mostly didn't so even having uh, an extra six weeks or so to develop seemed to make a difference um, and then the ones that we mulched pretty much all survived and the ones that we didn't failed so so i think we could still use the slip planting method because it made it so much easier but we would we would offset it and mulch um, so those are probably the two big ones and the other the other thing and again, I'm not sure if we could have predicted this, but in one aisle, for instance, we've got quince trees, which we've interplanted with sea buckthorn. Um, and the quince have done so badly that the sea buckthorn are now bigger than the tree. So we probably should have had it the other way around. But, <laughs> but again, you know, I don't know if that's a mistake or just a learning. But Yeah, well, thanks, Ben. Thank you so much for sharing all of this with us. And I learned a lot and I'm sure our listeners will as well. We hope we can we can get a place in your busy uh, schedule for another episode sometime in the next. Yeah, yeah, years. definitely. Okay, goodbye, Ben. Goodbye. Thanks very much. Thanks for listening to the episode, and we really hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. You'll find all the relevant links just below the episodes, and please feel free to reach out to us with any comments or suggestions for other episodes.